Well, you may be at that place where you're kind of saying, you know, we've been talking about joy, but what makes that joy solid? What makes it stick? What makes it firm so that it just doesn't go away? Which is, I was preparing this message and thinking about it, I, I couldn't help but think and ask this question. Kevin, what is it that robs your joy? If it's to be solid and firm, what is it that comes in and, and actually steals that sense of joy? And I ask you the same thing. What is it that comes along and, and, you know, maybe you're doing great and all of a sudden you're not in that same place. You've lost your joy. Maybe it's things like someone showing up late or you showing up late. Gas prices over four dollars. Or you go to your car and the gas is nearly empty and you were not the last one to drive it. What are those kind of things that rob you of joy? Maybe toys left out, dishes left in the sink, socks on the floor, tools still on the workbench. Maybe something not going your way. So as you're driving along the road, as you're going to try and get someone, you know you want to get there in a certain time and all of a sudden you see the light turn yellow and you're wondering, can I go through an orange light or not, right? And it turns red. Maybe it's uh, standing in a line, and as you're in that line, you're kind of just choosing which line to get into, and then you're standing there in your line for some reason. The person's credit card doesn't go through, and you see that other line, and your joy is gone. Anybody experience those things? Maybe uh, the twins lose, or the Vikings lose, or the wild lose, or the Timberwolves lose. Shall I go on? Yeah. You wake up to a cloudy, chilly morning. You wake up to another cloudy, chilly morning. You wake up to a month full of cloudy, chilly mornings. And you start out the day with your joy robbed. I was a teenager and I used to think, and specifically around a time when I was really processing through what it means to to, to live and to know and to follow Jesus. And I was, I was thinking to myself, what would happen in my life if a trauma occurred to such a degree that it left me dismembered or disfigured or paralyzed? How would I handle that? I remember thinking, what would that be like as I was contemplating then, you know, getting married and, and if that happened to the person that I love? Or to a deep and close friend or a child or a parent or something along that line. What would happen to my joy? I was uh, painting some closets for my wife for a Mother's Day kind of present. We're getting these closets all arranged. And as I was painting, I decided I'd turn on uh, the computer and listen to a documentary. And the documentary was called Happiness. And I just kind of had it on the background listening to it. And the, it's a, the Oscar-nominated uh, producer of it, his name is Rocco Bellic. He makes this assertion in this documentary that everybody wants to be happy, truly, deeply, blissfully happy. That's just kind of the way we're made. And so he began to explore that question, what makes people happy, genuinely joyful? And Belloc, as he shares his underlying motivation of why he actually went on years later to create this, was something that happened in his life when he was younger. He says, 
I went to Africa when I was 18 and I had this very shocking experience as an 18 year old. Literally hundreds of people over the course of just a few weeks who owned absolutely nothing. And I'd go and I'd meet them and they were genuinely exuding happiness. And I was taken back as an 18 year old. Which through some of his other projects that he did, he finally decided, I'm going to do this documentary on happiness. And so as Belloc um, examined this topic, he discovered that even though the United States is the wealthiest nation and among the wealthiest nations, he discovered that the U.S. reports some of the lowest levels of happiness. And so he did this documentary and it took him four years to do it. He went to 14 different countries. And part of what he was doing was just meeting with people and getting narratives of, of what brought joy and happiness and also narratives of sadness and depression. And he, he was just cataloging all these things. And, and, and he put it together in such a way that it goes on this documentary. And as I'm actually painting the wall and I'm listening, one story just grabbed my attention. There's a story by a name named uh, by a person, a, a lady named Melissa Moody. And, and at this story has her her son sharing about her mom when this traumatic experience happened to her. He, he tells about her past and how she grew up in the south. And, and she was one of those southern bells and, and was in these different pageants and, and this beautiful lady. And one day when she was visiting, Melissa, his mother, was visiting relatives in, in Texas and in the countryside there, she went for a walk. And as she was going for a walk, the truck pulled up beside her and in the truck be, was, was her sister-in-law. And they got talking. And as they were talking, they began to disagree about some things. It ended up being that it turned into a fight. And, and, and her sister-in-law was very angry. She was angry. And her sister-in-law just decided to pull away with the truck. And she did. As she pulled away, she didn't realize that Melissa's hand was actually in the door. And it was jammed in the door handle in such a way that it pulled her and dragged her. And as a result of that, ran over her, causing permanent disfigurement to her face. And she reports the fact that she's gone through some 30 different operations to reconstruct these crushed and broken bones. The documentary has her standing at one point on this muddy roadside where it occurred. And, and she hadn't, I guess, been back to that place. And she's back in that place. And as she returns to that accident scene, Melissa says it brought the reality of the moment back to me. All the reality and all the sadness. And the accident not just disfigured her, but it, it just caused so much havoc in her life. It brought a trail of problems that threatened to weigh her down the rest of her life. She says at one point in the documentary, there are many points when I just wanted to die. I wanted to commit suicide. And yet it was for the fact that I had children. It bought me time thinking that I needed to be there for them. You ever been in one of those situations? But if it wasn't for something outside of you, you felt just hopeless. When she was in that situation, four years after the accident, her husband divorced her. She is now disabled and she was left in a position where she had no income. She couldn't hold a job. She was so much just trying to get repair with regard to her body and all the things that occurred to it. The doctors, after they pieced together her crushed bones and, and actually did a surgery that, that almost failed to the point of giving her, causing her blindness. She was just on the brink of blindness. Had to do all kinds of work to even get her eyesight from, from what was almost blindness to a double vision to finally where she's able to see somewhat well today. She said that um, after all that surgery, the doctors basically said there's little hope for any further physical recovery. But despite her doctor's diagnosis, she was able to actually return to work. 
some 19 years after her accident, after hard work and labor and courage, she says this. She is happier than she has ever been. She comments in one of the articles, she says, she, like everyone, is susceptible to hardship still, of course. The accident, though, pushed her to live more profoundly. And she ends her little article, she says, I am a living miracle of trauma transcended and transformed. It has taken courage and patience and motivation and work, and I never dreamed the quality of my life could be what it is today. Not only am I healthy, I work with others and help others transcend and transform their own tragedies. And she says, I am blessed. I sat there and I thought to myself as I watched that and I recall what I thought when I was in my teenage years and and I'm thinking to myself, unbelievable. I mean, if something could rob your joy. And I I was reminded of the messages that we did back in December where we were talking about joy. And and in one of those messages, we said that we're going to use some words and and one of the ways to keep joy is, is, is to say it could be worse. And I remember thinking and looking at that going, man, What do I have to complain? How can I let my joy be robbed when I look at my situation? One of the factors that that they point to in this documentary that's so important for, for people to move into health and to actually experience joy and to actually know happiness in their life, they talk about the need for community. In fact, they pin it down to this. If there's these relationships that are loving and supportive and they come around you and they support you, they, they love you despite whether you're beautiful or not. They love you in the midst of your difficulties. They love you for who you are. And as they love you for who you are, they also then through that love help you in a sense move to become something that you weren't maybe ever going to be, but we're always called to be. You move into this place where you're transformed because of a community of relationships. In the importance of relationship. Rocco Bellock says that he's convinced that relationships are one of the keys to happiness. That if you're in good relationship. He says, when I saw, when I went to places like the slums of Calcutta, where people don't have any measure of success, what I saw instead was that people had a strong sense of community. The purpose in life was being a part of something bigger than themselves. And being as good as they can be among their friends and families had some kind of way of helping joy become a part of their life. And and even the secular filmmaker, I don't know if he has any faith or what it is, who is interested in the nature of happiness points to something that is true, that relationships are a key factor. And one of the things that's going to be really important as we look at the scripture here in just a moment is how important relationship is. And anything that comes into those relationships that removes, reduces, or redirects it from the kind of health and strength and from the kind of relationship where there is grace and goodness and the ability to stay truthful with one another will destroy and actually rob joy. So if you look at what Paul has to say in in Philippians chapter 3, in verses 1 through 11, as I really was pouring through this, it's all about relationship and it all starts with a certain kind of relationship. It's the relationship that you have with the one who created you. It's the relationship you have with God the Father. And Paul's really concerned as he writes this letter and you hear the tone of it. He's going to say, let no one rob you of that relationship. And, and you need to know where your joy comes from, how you have joy. And he's going to give you kind of some ideas of how to maintain that relationship. So he begins in verse 1. He says this further. 
my brothers and sisters. And, and the word here in some of your translations is the word finally. And, and, and he uses that there. And a little bit later, he says finally again. And you kind of go, well, is he just, you know, when is he going to get done with his final? I mean, is he just leading us on? The word here means more the idea for the rest of the letter, not finally as it's the end, but for the rest of the letter. I want you to concentrate on this truth. And you'll see it played out through the rest of the letter. He says, brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to do. Rejoice in the Lord. You can try and find your joy in all kinds of other places, but there is one relationship that when it's healthy and it's grace-based and, it's, and it moves into this place where you're, you're moving into grace, where you're coming before this God who loves you and then shares with you the truth so that you can move into deeper meaning for who you are. He says that's where joy is found. It's always found in that place. So he says rejoice in the Lord. And it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. In fact, for me to write this, he says, is really a safeguard for you. It will preserve not only your relationship with God through Jesus, but it will preserve the kind of community that he's creating around you with other people who live in that relationship. And so the first point is, he says here is remember where true joy is found. It's found in the Lord. It's found in your relationship with Jesus. It's found in the nature of that relationship, which he's going to share in just a moment, is so important. A relationship with God that is life-giving and it's life-changing because of the work of Jesus. And Paul even says, it doesn't bother me to write this again and again, because I myself, actually, Paul is saying, had to learn it. I realize that because of the world that we live in, because of sometimes the, the relational structures that we grow up in, because of sometimes the churches that teach us, we have this tendency of our flesh to move into a kind of relationship that puts us out of relationship with God and actually works against good community with other people. And so he says, don't forget, true joy is in God. Remember where your joy is found. Remember that his love covers all sin. When you find yourself broken, when you find yourself where you have sinned, where you have actually even done what is wrong and you know it's wrong before God, you have a choice to kind of separate yourself or you have the choice to recognize this truth that your joy and all that you need, the love that covers all sin is in God through what Jesus did for you. And he goes on, not only is, you, is this relationship full of love that, that, that covers your own brokenness and sin, he also goes on and he says, your strength will be in him so that when you come along in life and you, you experience a trauma and you go through a difficulty and you are experiencing the pain of that difficulty, Paul is really honest. He even says he's concerned at one point in this letter that he had sorrow upon sorrow. At one point he says, I would love for um, Epaphroditus to go back to you so that I, you know, I'm less anxious which is interesting because a little bit later he's going to tell you not to be anxious. He's going to tell you why and how. But he goes, you know what? If you understand his love covers those broken places, you also understand that it is his presence that is with you that strengthens you in these difficult times. So where are you going to find your joy? Back in the Lord. And not only that, his life, his life that he gives you. But we live with this understanding that this life is not the end, but we have a life that is yet to come. And if you're in relationship with him and understanding his love and you have moved to this place where you understand his strength and you begin to rely on that strength for your joy in all that's happening in your life, you live also with this place where his life secures you in the times of deep loss. There are some of you who have experienced that deep loss. You've lost a child. You've lost a spouse. You know the pain of that. But what, what is so interesting is go back to the Lord because in the Lord you're reminded once again that even in this, the pain of it, this life isn't the end. There's still more. 
It's really interesting. I, I, I'm kind of deaf in one ear, and, and I have this thought every once in a while because it's just, I mean, if it, maybe it was both would be different, but this one, and I, I always I have this thought, I go, you know, God, it's so wonderful. I love living in your grace and living in your presence and, and knowing your love and joy, but I can't wait someday till I can hear again with both ears. There is a sense you find your joy in the Lord and what he has for you. There's also this thing that he goes on in verses 2 through 4. He says, watch out for joy robbers. There are people who are going to come who will steal your joy. What they'll do is when he says, remember your, your joy in the Lord, this is the place, the focus of it. He now kind of begins to kind of share with you what that relationship looks like. That there are people that will come and they're going to actually try and take away your joy. There are people who are going to come in, and in, in, in Paul's day, they were called Judaizers. And if you look at this verse, it, you can tell that Paul's not too happy. And I'm going to explain to you in a moment just what these words have to, to, to mean, because they sound pretty harsh. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He's referring to those who want you to be circumcised, to have this badge that you're really one of God's. Because in the Jewish culture in that day, if you were a, a male and you were circumcised, that was a kind of a identity and badge that were God's privilege and chosen child. And he's saying there's people, and he doesn't use the word circumcised, he uses the word concision, that idea that there's people who want you to become mutilated in a sense. And he says, watch out for those, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in our flesh, which is our own abilities, our own inherited gifts. And Paul is actually saying these people would follow him wherever he would go. So he calls them dogs. And you go, well, why is he calling them dogs? You see, in that day, a Jewish person would call anyone who was a Gentile or a non-Jew, they would call them a dog. They were, they were in this sense, in, in, in those cities. And if you go to third world countries, you'll, you'll find this to be true. You'll find these packs of dogs kind of run around, and they're wild, they're unclean. They, they have no sense um, with regard to any kind of order or they're not obedient in any way. And you say, that's the way Gentiles were. That's kind of how he compared it. Now, first, think about it for a second. How many of your dogs, um, before you feed them, stop and pray and, and give thanks to God? How many, how many, do you, how many you got? I do. I have a dog that does that. You're, now you're laughing, but it's true. I'll show it someday. I have a Christian dog. No. Um, see, the, the point is, that within them, they're just natural. They just do, and they don't even think of their creator in a sense. They don't even think about you. They don't go, oh, thank you so much for the food. And so they're comparing them to that. And Paul is saying, in a sense, these people who say you're on the outside, he's calling them now instead of people who are in the, on the inside with God. He's calling them on the outside. And he says they're like dogs, like dogs that were nipping at his heels. Everywhere he was going, where he was helping people understand that their joys in the Lord and the kind of relationship they have with this God, they were actually like dogs, just following him around, creating problems. And then he goes on and he says not only that, they're evildoers. Because what they, they're doing is evil, he says... Not, you know, many of the things they would do in their mind were good, but the reason they were evil, he says, is because it was out of their own flesh. It was their own abilities that they were trying to make themselves right with God. And so what he's basically saying is there are people who are going to come into your life and they're going to say, yes, your joy is in the Lord, but it's not fully in the Lord. You still have to do these things. You have to perform this. You have to, in some way, follow these rules. And he, he basically 
saying, watch out for people who steal your joy because they want you to have a relationship that is based on your performance. So that if you measure up and you just do enough and you follow the rules just correctly enough, then you'll be in a place where God loves you and accepts you. And he's going, that's not what it's all about at all. In fact, if you look at it, he says, you're the ones on the inside, for you have had a circumcision of your heart. What he's talking about here is the Spirit of God has come and taken your heart and your stubborn heart. He's convicted you of your sin. And as a result of knowing that, you recognize your brokenness. And because your brokenness is now totally on what Jesus has done and not on what you can perform and do. It's based on God's grace and His gift that comes through Jesus in Him alone. So you're the true circumcision. You're the one that the Spirit of God is working through. You're the one, he says, that now as a result of that, you find your boast not in what you're doing, but in what God's done for you. He says, watch out. You can, you can find people coming into your life who are going to try and, and, and rob you of your joy that's found in Jesus and the grace that comes in him alone. And they'll start coming along and they'll say, you know, if you just do this, and you follow this, and you do these rules and you perform in a certain way, you, if you perform like this, then you're going to be good enough. Now, for instance, let me just put it this way. If I um, came and some of you have children and I were to spend time with your children on a regular basis and I sat down with your children and I said, you know what, your mom and dad are really great people. But they're really only going to love you if you get A's in school. You keep your room spotless and clean. And if you just are really obedient to, to everything else, as you do these things and perform in this way, then you'll... You'll, you'll be accepted by them. And if you really want to know joy, you need to do this. And so what you do is you set them on this track that some of you have actually grown up with, right? You try really hard to measure up. You do all that you can to do what you can perform before God, hoping that someday He's going to go, good, as a result of what you've done, I will be present with you and I will allow you to know my love. And He goes, no, that's not the way that you experience the presence of even, even your parents' love. It's based on their grace. I mean, because if it's based on the other, you live your life in fear. You're constantly wondering, are they angry with me? Did I do enough? Am I okay? And so what you end up losing your joy living that way. And he's saying, I don't want you to live that way before God, your father. In fact, if you get bad grades, what do you do? If you're going to be based on how they love you and how they accept you, and you get a bad grade, you're going to try and hide the report card. Anybody ever done that? You're going to be much more concerned about hiding your interior life and looking good on the outside that it can be accepted. And Paul says that ruins your relationship with God. In fact, that ruins your relationship with other people as well. Because now all you start doing is you start living in such a way that you want your life to look a certain way on the outside, but your life on the inside is hidden. And he says, I don't want you to live that way. It'll rob you of your joy. You've experienced that, I'm sure, some of you, in relationship to God, where you experience that fear. So I ask you this. Are you a joy stealer? Do you rob people's joy? Or is, is there someone coming in to rob your joy? Now, what's interesting is Paul goes on and he basically, um, through this passage of Scripture, shares with you how you can know your joy is being robbed and things that you need to know so that you don't get your joy robbed. And as you look at this passage of Scripture, you'll find that in verses 4 through 6, he'll go through and he'll list some things. And I'm going to share with you four things to pay attention to so that you can know how your joy is being robbed. One is this, when you have poor boundaries. 
Paul in verses 2 through 3 and 1 through 3 is basically stating some truths so that they can set up some boundaries so that they will not live in a performance-based relationship, but they will constantly live in a grace-based relationship that is based on what Jesus has done through the cross and His work so that you glory only in what He's done and not what you do. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about the fact that you, if, you, if you choose to live in a performance-based relationship with God, you're, you're actually going to be using the wrong measuring stick. And when you find yourself using that wrong measuring stick, you're going to find yourself losing that joy. And then he goes on a little bit later and he says that he talks about gain and loss in, in verses 7 and 8. He stalks like an accountant and he says now there's some misguided investments. You don't want to invest in the wrong thing because you don't want to get to the end of your life and find out what you've been investing all your life in is not going to be worth anything. In fact, it's like garbage. And then he kind of ends it with this idea where your confidence is. One of the ways you lose your joy is through a false confidence. What are you putting your, your hope in, your confidence in? And so he talks about poor boundaries. And he begins and he says, the reason I'm writing this as a safeguard to you because I want to kind of, in a sense, put up a fence around you so that you don't do this. And he says, there are some things that are important if you're going to have good boundaries. One is you need to know what is true. You see, poor boundaries a lot of times come because we're uninformed about the truth. And then what happens if you're uninformed about the truth, you also can begin to have these poor boundaries because you're more concerned about what others think. And if you don't know the truth and you're concerned about what others think, you have no authority in which to say, hey, that's wrong. I remember when I first came to this church, there was a couple of things that happened that were, you know, every church has things that go on. And, and this caused me some sadness. I remember journaling about it. We had a, a new young man who came to the church who was going to a next step class. And he was wearing jeans and, and he shared in the class that someone had came up to him and said, you know what, um, you're, you can't wear jeans here. I'm sorry. And that person didn't come back. And then, and then I, it was about a month or two later, another young man, he sat down with me and he had been, he actually wore one of these hoodies. And he had someone come up to him and said, you know what? Um, we, we dress up here. Thank God he had some strength. He had an understanding and he knew the truth that God wasn't really concerned about your dress. I mean, he's not really concerned whether I have socks on or not, Right. I mean, you can wear really good clothes and have a bad heart. You can really wear bad clothes and have a bad heart. You can wear bad clothes and have a good heart. You can have good clothes and a good heart. What God's really concerned about is not the clothes. He's concerned about the heart. And if you don't have good boundaries, you won't know the truth. And so one of the reasons we, we have someone come up and say, we've got a class that's going to be offered to the summer, and if it's possible for you to be there, so you can learn more truth, so that when you get the truth, you can actually take the truth. And if someone tells you something, you can go, you know what, I may have this tendency to be concerned about what others think, but I can actually hear what that person thinks and go, you know what, I'm more concerned about what you think, and I know the truth. And so you can say to that person, I really, really appreciate what you have to say, but you know what, I'm going to use my authority and tell you that's wrong. I'm living not in a performance-based relationship with God. I don't want to create that kind of relationship with Him, nor do I want to create that with the community I live in. And so with what I call proper boundaries, God allows for you to begin to move more fully into His grace, and you do that when you know His truth. And this is what I call these, what Paul had is what I call these wrong measuring sticks. As you go on, he says, Paul makes it really clear, he says, you know what, my confidence was um, in this. See, verse 4, I used to have confidence 
in these things. This is the measuring stick I used to have with regard to my performance before God. That if I just did these things, God would be really proud. He'd go, good job, Paul, because you're so good, I love you. If someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. And Paul points out these things. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons, I have more because I've been circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisees, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You get this picture of Paul who um, is, is sharing the road he used to walk on, and he's going, you know what, here's the problem with this measuring stick. It's based on a couple things that people put their pride and confidence in. One of them is what I would call inherited and natural gifts. You have inherited natural gifts. That's what Paul refers to when he, when he talks about this. He's circumcised on the eighth day. Paul didn't on the eighth day go, hey, I want to be circumcised. His parents did that for him. So he, he, gloried, people can, he gloried in that. A people of Israel, of this group of people. Not only that, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Anybody who is from a, a Hebrew family would understand that this was, was really true. He entered into a covenant relationship when he was circumcised. He wasn't a proselyte. He didn't come from a Gentile background. No, he descended from, uh, not from Ishmael or Esau. And the Judaizers would understand this, and he was going from, into this. He says, the tribe of Benjamin, because Benjamin and Joseph were the favorite sons of uh, Jacob's. And from the tribe of Benjamin, he goes on and says, and it was not only that, this tribe was the one that was faithful to David during the rebellion. I was, I mean, if anybody made the grade from what they've been given, it was me. And then he goes on, because this is what the other side of the measuring stick is. It's not just what you've been given. Maybe you were born into a certain situation. But now you go on and achieve certain things. That's the next part of the list. And Paul goes on and says, in regard to the law of Pharisee. Now, we hear Pharisees and we usually think, you know, hypocritical, they're rotten, whatever. Not in that day. They were the ones who were sold. They were the ones going on mission trips. They're the ones who are really looked at as being God followers. And then he goes on and he says, not only was it a, a Pharisee, in regard to zeal, not only did I hold to the truth, not only did I teach the truth, but actually I fought for the truth. When go around and persecute people who are against it. And not only that, he says, with regard to righteousness, I was meticulous, faultless, without blame. I would do whatever needed to be done. Now, I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, what if, what if I was to stand up here and say to you, you know, guys, think about it for a second. If anyone's getting into heaven, if anyone really has God's love, it's me. Now, yeah, okay, get the booze out. Okay. So listen to it then. If, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in their abilities and their flesh and their naturally inherited things, I have more. I was dedicated as an infant within my first month. A Protestant, an evangelical, an evangelical free church kid who went to church every time the doors were open because my dad was a pastor. And my dad went on to be the president of the evangelical free church seminary. Not only that, I went to a Christian college. I chose that. Then I chose to go to seminary. Began as a youth pastor when I was 17. Have been in ministries for 30 plus years. And for zeal, I still go to church five to six times a week. I'm paid to do that. Anyway. Um, and for righteousness compared to the rest of the world. I, you know, you kind of go, what? And then I think of, you know, what the whole measuring stick thing does. It puts you in a comparison. 
and it makes people better than you and in some, by what you're doing and what you've been given. And, and Paul says that just messes up community and messes up your relationship with God. It's the wrong measuring stick. It always creates pride. And so I'm writing this little thing down and I'm doing this whole little thing about what it, I, and also I thought to myself, Paul Bergren's better than me. Some of you know Pastor Paul, 70 years in ministry. And I'm going, how do I do 75? Anyway, um, not only that, a misguided investment. Here's, here's one of the great doctrines of the church. It's called, um, it's, it's the, the sense that you've been declared righteous. It's this imputed righteousness. It's not something that you did. Where Paul says it's not about your inherited gifts and what you've been born with. It's not about what you can achieve and what you do. It's the fact that what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. And so Paul is, at this point, he says, but whatever was gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And he's talking here the language of an accountant where he's talking about ledgers. But before I do that, I just want to share with you because sometimes the word of God takes the Greek and it sterilizes it a little bit. Because when these people are reading this, I'm going I'm to share with you, I'm a little on the edge here. Of, of what I think it would have sounded to them like. He was saying all these things that I've been given or achieved in my mind are like garbage. And the word he uses is actually literally dung, manure. In a sense, he's saying all that stuff is like a dump that needs to be flushed. Now, that sounds really crass. But literally, when they read that, that's what he's saying. It stinks. It's no good. It messes things up. When you begin to use your performance as a way of gaining God's love. And so what he basically says is this. I, on the ledger, Paul, put all these things down here towards my gain, my natural and all these. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Put on the, a ledger your name. And then put all the natural born things and things you've inherited that really stand in your favor before God. And then I would ask you to take all your achievements, all the things you've actually done, list all those things and get, you know, take the whole ledger. Here are all those things. Now, on the other side of the ledger, what I want you to do is put the name Jesus Christ. And I would love for you to take and say, what are all the natural, inherited, born things that are in his favor? And then beyond that, all the things that he's achieved. And what I'd ask you to do is you're going to stand before God and say, God, I want your love and your acceptance. Which one of those are you going to use? If you have the choice to, to use your own or to use Jesus's, which one are you going to use? And what Paul is basically saying is it's not about trying combining your two, because the moment you combine those two, you have some glory and confidence in what you're doing. It's all about one thing and one thing only. All the value of God's love that is poured upon you is the fact that he looks at you in the way that he looks at his son, the way that he has given him righteousness as a result of his life and his death. It's yours. And you get to live with that every day of the week. It's not a matter of trying to prove yourself to God and measuring up. And when you screw up trying to hide yourself and hide yourself before other people, it's about a community of people that are so touched in their heart by what God has done through Jesus Christ that you go, all of His righteousness has been imputed to me. His love, His life pours into me through His Holy Spirit. I have been circumcised in my heart. The hardness has been cut away. I now have a soft heart and want to live for God. And even when I do things wrong, it's not about hiding my report cards or trying to somehow hide from you by false. It's about saying, here's who I am. And God loves me that way. And this kind of community we're going to be. 
where people are going to come and feel safe because they know that they are forgiven and loved by God. And when they begin to experience that love and they begin to experience the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God through the Word of God, through the truth of God, begins to call out of them their best and truest self. They begin to see God do good things to them. They begin to love the way Jesus loved. They begin to see people the way Jesus sees people. They begin to, to turn and to change. But they don't hide it. They just, when they do wrong, they just admit it and they confess. Thank God I'm not in this performance-based thing. Thank God I'm not living in fear daily. Thank God I can walk in joy. That's the gospel. That's what Paul was so afraid that people would lose. So what are you investing in? A bunch of rules? Thinking that somehow if you do all these things, God's going to be patting you on the back? Or out of a grateful, loving, just broken heart, he's going, thank you, God, that you love me because of Jesus. And here's the last part, your confidence. I, I share this because... It was this verse of Scripture, this passage of Scripture, when I was in college and I was really seeking to understand what it means to know God, that I went to this room, I just knew I was supposed to open the Bible and read, and I started reading this chapter 3, and it just drilled into me. And for a month, for some 30-plus days, I don't even know how long, I would read the same thing over and over again. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. It became clear to me that the only way I'm going to have this kind of this kind of life and this relationship is because I'm growing in this understanding of the life that Jesus lived. And that's what I'm giving my life to. I'm going to pursue and develop that. And Paul is saying, if you do that, you will begin to experience joy. I was going through this whole message and someone gave to me this card with a DVD. And uh, it says, as a class... One of the adult classes called Crossroads spent about eight weeks in a, a series of, of, of teaching called I Am Second. And as a part of the class, this person writes, people poured out their hearts about why they were second, why Jesus was first. And then they say this short DVD is a compilation of their thoughts and desires. So you're going to see what one of our classes put together, and I encourage you just to let it soak into your heart.